I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. In today's show, we're going to discuss the top three football and the top three men's or women's basketball games that we've covered in our time covering the Oregon Ducks over the last decade or so uh, between Eric and I. All coming up next here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Real quick, guys, if, if before we dive into the show, I want to remind you that we are offering uh, a subscription to DuckTerritory.com for as low as $1 for your first month and then $9.95 thereafter that. We've got tons of inside scoop. We've got a ton of really cool Duck fans that are on the site that uh, discuss all things Oregon athletics and college football, college basketball, recruiting, and everything in between on a da- daily basis. Uh, just a really good time if you can afford it right now, even though there are no sports, to subscribe to DuckTerritory.com because there's still a ton of stuff going on, a lot of good discussion going on on DuckTerritory.com. All right, Eric, uh, we were discussing this last week of kind of how we wanted to prepare this show, and um, we're going to do basketball first. You've, you've covered a ton of women's games, some really good men's games as well. Uh, I've basically stuck with the men's side because I don't have as much experience as you do on the women. But I'll start things off with my number three game or most important, most influential, you know, most significant game uh, from an Oregon basketball standpoint that I've covered uh, from the Oregon basketball program. And I started covering this Oregon basketball team the final year of Ernie Kent. So the 2008 and the 2009 season, I I believe that's, it's been so long that I I honestly have have forgotten (laughs) how long, you know, it's, it's been, um, at Ernie Kent's last season at Oregon came in the 2009, 2010 season. So that was the first year I started. Uh, covering Oregon basketball. I've covered all 10 of Dana Altman's seasons at Oregon and we'll, we'll cover his 11th. Um, and, and my, my first game that I, I pick here goes with Dana Altman's 2012, 2013 team. They were, uh, they were a, a, a decent team that year in, in conference play and in non-conference. But there was definitely a feeling in which going into the Pac-12 tournament in 2013 that they needed to make a run to get into the NCAA tournament. Um, they 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 were going into the Pac-12 tournament. They were 23 and eight. They had just lost two straight games at Colorado at Utah to basically give up an opportunity to win the conference in the regular season, if I remember right. And so there was not a lot of momentum going on their side going into the Pac-12 tournament play. And, you know, they they squeak out a three-point win in overtime against Washington in the first round. And then they blow out Utah in the Pac-12 semifinals, 64-45. to And then they play a, a top 25 UCLA team who just – had beaten Arizona the week, the, the night before. And many people viewed that as the, the Pac-12 championship game. And yet Oregon came in, they, they win this game 78 to 69. And the reason why it's, it's significant is because A, it's their first Pac-12 championship with Dana Altman. It validates everything, uh, in terms of, hey, the, the program is going in the right direction. They're starting to win games. They went 12 and 6 in conference play. They finished before the tournament, the NCAA tournament, they finished with a 26 and 8 record, so they're going to have fewer than 10 losses. Uh, I believe at the time it, it was very close to programs, you know, most wins in, in a single season. It wasn't the, the record, but it was close to it, and it, it was a, in a way in which, you know, Oregon kind of 
dominated throughout. You know, they had a nine point lead at the half. They were even with UCLA in the second half and the Ducks walked away with a nine point win and it, and it allowed them to get into the tournament and it allowed them then to upset number five seed Oklahoma State, upset number four seed St. Louis and make the sweet 16 and Dana Altman's third season at Oregon, which is a, a pretty remarkable climb for where the program was at just three years before. My number three is we're thinking on the exact same page here, um, in part because of just to give a little bit of a history here, I, I have not covered the, te- the men's basketball team quite as significantly as Matt has. Um, I covered it, I believe, 2011 through 13 for EDUC and then took about a four-year break and then picked it back up during the Pac-12 stretch of the uh, final four season. So that's kind of where, and then I guess like you could say I deviated the last couple of years because we kind of split up the responsibilities and I was covering the women's team while Matt was covering men's. So, um, but I am sticking with that 2012-2013 uh, tournament run. Uh, I look at that and I was down in San Jose. I think that's actually the only time I've traveled with the men's team for postseason play. Um, and I was there for the games Matt just kind of quickly ran through. That Oklahoma State upset 68-55 and that St. Louis upset 74-57. That set up a Sweet 16 appearance. And it was a huge thing to make the Sweet 16 at that point. Um, obviously, Oregon prior during the 2000s had made a couple runs to the lead eight under Ernie Kent. But under Dana Altman, there was still, I don't want to say skepticism of what they could do, but they just hadn't done it yet. And so for them to go out and win two games in San Jose – knock off a couple of seeds that were significantly, you know, more highly regarded. And um, it was funny because I think when the, when the seeds were set, it was surprising that Oregon was going to be seeded the way it was in San Jose, which means they were going to have a, you know, somewhat of a home court advantage. Yes. And that's exactly what it was. And then Oregon had the support on their side. They were the, like Matt was just establishing there, the way they played in the Pac-12 tournament. Um they had, they were kind of one of those hotter teams kind of quietly. And I think, I think it was Travis Ford, the coach of Oklahoma State was kind of like, that was not really all that fair that they were a 12 seed playing where they were. Um, but that's just kind of the way things played out. And then of course they go out and beat St. Louis. So that, those two games there, um, are my third picks for, for this list in terms of the most influential or, um, important games that I've covered for the men's basketball side of things. My number two from a, from a basketball standpoint, flash forward a couple years to the 2015-2016 season, and I almost picked Oregon beating Arizona in overtime of the Pac-12 semifinals of the Pac-12 tournament. Uh, that was a wild game. Oregon led by 15 at half, and it was like this game could, get, could just be a destruction for Arizona. And then they tied it. They went crazy in the, in the mm-hmm. second half, and then it went to overtime, and Oregon pulled out the – the six-point win there, but I'm going to go into the tournament, and that that Arizona win helped Oregon get a one seed, and Oregon ended up playing in the West region in Anaheim. I remember going to the Sweet 16 game, and there was just like this buzz about it all day because the Ducks played in the, in the evening because they were playing Duke, and Duke was not... I, I, it's crazy. They, they were not, you know, the elite Duke that we associate with them. Yet they were still a four seed. They were 25 and 11 or 25 and 10 going into that game. Um, but there were still Duke and there were still a ton of NBA players on it. And there was still a ton of just buzz about this game because it's Oregon versus Duke. And how often do you go into a game in which you feel like, uh, up until this point where, Hey, Oregon is the equal to Duke, if if not the better team this season. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, and so you you had this feeling that Oregon was better. You had the, I mean, I I remember thinking Oregon. It's like, oh, if Oregon plays at their best, they're going to win, and it it might not. I didn't think it was going to be the blowout that we got, but right, it it was going to be a, a game in which there was you know they kind of control things, and. The question was, what? How does ha- how does Oregon handle the pressure of playing in the Sweet 16? A lot of these guys on, at Oregon were sophomores or juniors or freshmen, and how do they handle playing the name across the chest of their opponent? Because the name Duke carries a lot of weight, and when you're in a win or go home scenario, that's a ton of pressure. And Oregon just blasted them. They were up by five at the half. They 
you know, pull away to win by 14 points, 82 to 68. We all know about, you know, the end game of, of, of Dylan Brooks hitting that three pointer and Mike Krzyzewski not being happy about that. But the lasting image I have of that game was Oregon was the far superior team athletically, far superior team skill wise, depth wise. Um, you know, they were just significantly better in almost every aspect of that game. And Elgin Cook went off. He had 16 points and nine rebounds. And Dylan Brooks had his 22, six and five. And I think this was a game in which Dylan Brooks as a junior, as an all American kind of the campaign started here. And Jordan Bell was just unbelievable. This was the first game where I think a lot of people felt, hey, Jordan Bell could be an NBA player because he had 13 points, three blocks, seven rebounds, an assist, two steals. He was everywhere. He was 6 of 11 from the field. Um, this was the game. I mean, Oregon would go on and lose the next round in the Elite Eight to Oklahoma and Buddy Heald. Uh, that was a wild game to cover as well. But this really felt like, the moment where it was, okay, Oregon no longer is this upstart program, this team that's, that, that, that is making moves and, you know, could be a really good team in a couple, you know, years or this program is, is going in the right direction too. They've arrived. They've arrived as one of college basketball's best teams. And I think this was also a defining moment for Dana Altman as a head coach of, hey guys, I, I'm actually a pretty good coach as well and I know what I'm doing. My number two is the next season, and I, again, this is the Final Four season, but I didn't cover any of these games in person uh, in, in the NCAA tournament. So I'm looking earlier in the season here, and it was a home game against Arizona yeah. where Oregon just couldn't miss from three-point range. And I think the significance of this one is not entirely that Oregon hit 16 of 25 from three-point range in that game. And you look at who I've got the shot chart in front of me. Tyler Dorsey was six for six from three. Dylan Brooks was four for seven. Casey Benson was three for five. Chris Boucher was two for three. Peyton Pritchard was one for three. Everybody was knocking in the three-point shots, and it was a deal where these teams came together, and it was two highly regarded teams that had really, really strong records. Both teams came in, I think, with two or three losses, and Arizona hadn't lost in conference play. They were 10-0 and coming in. Oregon was 9-1, and and midway through the first half, it was really clear the way this game was going to go. Oregon led 38-18 at half. They win 85 to 58. I thought that was one of those games that kind of put, I don't want to say put Oregon on the map, but Arizona had been the elite program in the conference for, under Sean Miller for quite some time. And this was one of those games where Arizona had been the team under Miller that had been dominating teams like Oregon previous seasons. Oregon finally kind of got its chance to fire back and they took advantage of it and they really handed a talented Arizona team. I mean, you look at who was on that team for Arizona, and there's a handful of guys that are, you know, NBA players, Raleigh Hawkins, Lori Markinen, Alonzo Trier. Um, I guess those are the only three that are still. Kobe Simmons was drafted. I don't know if he's still on a roster, but it was a roster with talented players, and they didn't have really much of a chance against that Oregon team. It was just one of those days where everything was falling. Um, and it was, I think, one of to me, one of the more memorable moments from that, season, which I think for a lot of people will be one of the more memorable seasons from an Oregon men's basketball standpoint for quite some time. I remember that game and going back and thinking like the reactions from Sean Miller after every three pointer, it was just like, he'd throw his hands up just being like, what are you going to do? They're not missing. Like I'm telling my guys, you know, to, to guard them, but they keep going further and further out from the three point line or, you know, shooting before they're fully set. And it's just nothing but net. Like that was a game in which, it was insane of how prolific of a shooting pro the team was. Uh, I, I remember that one. Wasn't that also the game in which the game got off to a late start because the fans threw up all the powder? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, no, I think you are right on that. Yeah, it got off to a weird start. I'd kind of forgotten that. No, I think you like are Dan right Dan Altman like, stormed out on the court and was like pissed at the student section because like they stopped the game because there was so much powder everywhere and – that the refs warned, like, if there was one more stoppage in play for whatever reason because of the crowd, all, you know, Oregon's team was going to be assessed a technical. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number one for me, I think, I think this is obvious from a men's basketball standpoint, and that is in Kansas City, 
against the number one seed Kansas Jayhawks. Oregon was a three seed, and they straight up blasted Kansas. They were beating the Jayhawks by 11 at half. They go on to win by 14 points um, in a game in which let me just set the scene here for you. Like Oregon won 74 to 60. They advanced to the Final Four. This is their first Final Four in the modern era of college basketball. And I remember being in Kansas City, and the the game was played, I, I think, early evening, like around 6 o'clock local time in Kansas City, so I think 4 p.m. West Coast time. But I remember um, I went I went out and about, you know, early on in the, in the late morning, early afternoon, before going over to the to the arena. Um, I was with some friends that were living in the area, and they were t- they took me out to a a barbecue spot and we were just hanging out and the whole city of Kansas city was just straight buzzing with Jayhawk basketball. And it was, I believe it was St. Patrick's day too, or, or right around that time. Like maybe St. Patrick's day was like the next day or what have you. And the city was in this humongous party and because it was, Hey, it's Kansas, it's St. Patty's day. So St. Patty's weekend. And Kansas is playing literally just an hour away from their campus in the state's biggest city with the biggest group of, of Kansas fans, and they're a one seed, and if they win this game today, they go to the, the Final Four. Everything's set up perfectly, so it's literally like a party. You, I rolled up to the arena, and across from the arena was this huge like outdoor food court, you know, bunch of bars, basically. And they were having this huge party. It was like they'd already they'd already won. Essentially, they were all, Kansas fans were already kind of hammering home the fact that they were going to go to the Final Four. Oregon didn't have Chris Boucher, and this was a humongously predominant Kansas crowd. And you walk into the arena, and then I, you know I, I remember um, going back to the workroom and coming out when there was maybe 15, 20 minutes to go before game time to get in my, into my seat. And the arena was basically full already. And it was blue all the way around, except for one tiny little sliver that was all green. There were about a thousand fans there at Oregon and the crowd, the energy was insane. It was like being at a Kansas game, you know, at Allen Fieldhouse. And, it was a home crowd. They were juiced up. And then from the get-go, Oregon was just the better team. And not only was the the what happened on the court significant and historical and all that because Oregon won and got, got to the, the Final Four, but doing it where they did it was wild because you see these fans that are that – are, the arena is 99% in favor of Kansas. And just to see their mood go from we're going to the Final Four at the start of the, of the game – to halftime of, oh my God, what is happening? This team is destroying Kansas to the second half having that jolt of, okay, we're going to come back. We're going to win this game to then being with three or four minutes left in the game and the Kansas fans coming to, to the realization that the perfect scenario for them to get to the final four has been crushed and they aren't going and Oregon is. And where did this Oregon team come from? Um, was was pretty cool to watch. And then I, I think another lasting image I have from this, and I kind of going on a long rant here, but the game is over. And I just remember just like the pure joy. You could see it in the faces of the players and also the staff. Like I'll, I'll never forget walking down the hallway towards the, the locker room and Dana Altman is being, is going somewhere. I don't know where he's going. He's by himself in the hallway and you just, I, he, we cross paths. He stops for a second and it's just like, wow, we're going to the final four. What a run. I'm so happy. And you could just, you know, he's a guy that's like, Eric, mm-hmm. you, you've been to enough Dane Altman press conferences where he doesn't show emotion a ton. And it was like everything, his complete guard was down and he was just, we did it. We're going to the final four. This team is really good. And it's not like he didn't doubt them, but it's just like, all the work that he spent of years of getting the program, getting himself into a position where he, he could be at the highest level, and they finally reached it, seeing all those players and all those coaches do that was pretty cool. 
Oh, it sounds awesome. I, I, I think I, I'm envious of that one because it was that was one clearly I watched on television, and I think it's one where the experience of watching it on television was pretty invigorating. You know, Jordan Bell blocking what was it, almost ten shots, Tyler Dorsey hitting all those big threes. Um, all of that was exciting to watch, but I can't imagine what it would have been like in person there with that environment because the environment was something you picked up on television, but. Uh, that's obviously vastly different in person as opposed to on your couch watching it on TV. And Real quick, I, I forgot I forgot to mention this about the game. Kansas won the tip, and Oregon that Oregon essentially allowed Kansas to run. They run a certain play on the first play of every game, and Oregon kind of picked up on it. And it was a play in which Josh Jackson kind of goes back door and either gets an alley oop attempt or. Um, a layup, you know, a, a, an opportunity for a shot at the rim. And Oregon wanted to send a message, and they knew that play was coming, and so they allowed Josh Jackson to get it. And Josh, uh, Josh Jackson went up for a, a layup or a dunk. I can't remember what it was. And Jordan Bell was waiting and absolutely swatted it. And it was right, that was like a message right away of, hey, we're the better team. And we're more prepared. We're going to win this game. And I think that really set the tone. It's the first play of the game. You can go look it up on YouTube and just go watch Jordan Bell and watch Josh Jackson. And they allow Jackson to go to where he wants to get the ball so that they could block it. I think years later, Matt really enjoys that play in part because Josh Jackson was a Phoenix Suns draft pick that did not pay off at all. And, uh, <laughs> and probably wishes they'd taken Jason Tatum or somebody else there, but, um, <laughs> another digression. Um, my number one, unfortunately, I don't have a game in the NCAA tournament like that that lives up to it, but this was just a really surreal experience to be part of. It was the Kobe game this year in Corvallis, and now we're talking women's basketball. Um, I don't th- it, There are not that many things in my life that I can think of where I'll always remember where I was for it or just the, the pure shock of learning kind of new information. And when our intern, Jared, tapped me on the shoulder and said, looks like Kobe died today, I was like, I didn't. I had no idea how to even respond to that information um, because this was about a week after Oregon, uh, not even a week after, a couple of days after Oregon had hosted Oregon State um, in Eugene at Matthew Nutt Arena, and there was talk about a special guest being in attendance, and that might be Kobe. I mean, that was like kind of a rumor. And so for him to be dead like about a week later was shocking. And then the fact that you recognize that, oh, this is really going to impact Sabrina Ionescu for Oregon and the whole team, but Sabrina in particular, and the surreal nature of what happened before the game where members of both teams get together and they, they hold a prayer circle and th- that significance and finish it by saying Kobe's name uh, and everything that went into that. And Sabrina coming onto the court before the game, clearly in tears, very emotional, didn't come out for any of the pregame warmups. And then the game itself, which, you know, is kind of a blur. I think Sabrina Ionescu even said that in an interview about a week ago where she doesn't remember the bell that much from the game. The game itself is kind of not that memorable either. I mean, Oregon wins 66-57. They're statistically, it's one of their worst games of the season. They only shot about 40% from the field. Um, below that, actually, they shot lower than 30% from three. Sabrina was six for 17 in the game. She had four turnovers. She didn't play her best. But they get the win and the significance of what that meant in terms of just what that day was. But also that it ended a 10-year drought of winning games in Corvallis. And really established Oregon, again, not that they already weren't clearly the better team than Oregon State, because I think they've proven that in terms of postseason and kind of the winning the Pac-12 you know, consecutive seasons. But they hadn't been able to sweep the Beavers yet, and that was something that they were able to do on that day, which just so happened to coincide with um, the passing of a NBA legend who happened to have a strong relationship with Sabrina, who was one of the players on the team. And I still remember... You know, you go home and you put on Sports Center, and they're showing that, that some of the, you know the moments from that game in the coverage of it because of how significant all of it was. So I, I think that's one of those things where it's going to be hard for me to ever kind of forget where I was when when that one went down. Yeah, I remember that one. That day was just surreal because, like you said, like it, it was one of those things that comes across Twitter or your phone or what have you for when you get the news. You're like that can't be real. That's that's fake. Like, we're, I'm going to check the blue check mark to make sure that, you know, the person that's saying this is 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 accurate and isn't some kind of hoax. And you know, like, oh, it it is from a respectable person. Yeah. That, that, it, what? That can't be right. And then like, just 
the that game was supposed to be so much. It, it was supposed to be viewed in an entirely different light of you know heated rivals, a program in Oregon that's not really won there in years. Uh, this was going to be the year that they did it, and it was going to be a, a, a joyous win. And I remember watching them and they win and it's kind of like they were they were happy they won but they were more relieved it felt like that the game was over and that they could go back to just mourning the loss of of kobe and then i remember going later that day going to mathnet arena for um oregon versus ucla game and it was the same manner like there there was just a a cloud that was hanging over the program so that that for sure is is going to be a moment in time that I think a lot of people won't forget for, for women's basketball. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Matt Frame, Eric Scopel. We are breaking down the three biggest games that we've covered, or significant games that we've covered as a media member uh, for Oregon Athletics, we just did the men's and women's basketball side. We're going to do football now on, on the back end. There's, I think there's a lot more games here. Um, we have longer backgrounds of being in person for more away, more bowl, uh, more in-season games than we do for from the basketball side, uh, Eric. But my number three is the 2015 National Championship game against Ohio State. Um, it's the only game in which I include being a loss of, of any of the six games that I, I listed. But nonetheless, I, I go back to it thinking what there's a ton of what ifs with this game because Oregon jumped out to an early seven nothing lead. Uh, I think their first possession of the game, they drove down the field 11 plays, 75 yards and scored. Keenan Lowe got that touchdown pass from Marcus Mariota and then I think if I remember right, you know, they stop Ohio State again and they're start they're driving and Dwayne Stanford and Charles Nelson on the same drive both drop passes that probably would have resulted in touchdowns if not touchdowns mm-hmm. putting Oregon in a position where cuz remember they had a good kicker in Aiden Schneider where Schneider could have made a field goal and and the game could have been flipped where it, it could have been 14 nothing or 10 nothing at worst case scenario uh, over an Ohio State team that admittedly was the bigger team. And they were going to win this game by running the football with Ezekiel Elliott, um, Cardell Jones. Like Cardell Jones you know, was solid throwing the football, 16 of 23, 242 yards and a touchdown. But uh, he carried the ball 21 times. He scored a touchdown uh, in that game. And, you know, or, Ohio State ran the ball 61 times because they yeah. knew they were the bigger team. And if they if they just controlled the line of scrimmage and milked the clock, they would wear down Oregon. And Oregon had that opportunity where it felt like early on in this football game they were going to be able to to jump up and, and get up by two scores and force Ohio State to play out of their comfort zone, which was – throwing the football with a third-string quarterback. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. Ohio State goes into halftime uh, leading 21-10, to 10, and then Oregon gets within uh, you know one point before Ohio State pulls away in the fourth quarter. You know They score 14 points. Oregon doesn't score at all. And 
Oregon loses 42 to 20. But it's a game in which I felt like Oregon had their chances to win a national championship early and just didn't execute. And that lack of execution led to their chances of winning a title slip away. I think people forget that Oregon did cut it to one point in the third quarter. Yeah. I think people look at that game and think it was just like a total butt kicking. And it really was at times like that fourth quarter was very lopsided in Ohio State's favor. People also forget Ohio State scored a touchdown with like a minute to go where they could have taken a knee. Um, That game could have been 35-20. I remember that being something that was like, that didn't feel exactly right at the time. But Ezekiel, it was just like unstoppable. I think he had like, 36 carries, 246 yeah. yards, four touchdowns. I was gonna say, I, I was gonna say, I thought he had like 250 yards and five touchdowns, and I wasn't actually very far off, which tells you exactly how dominant he was um, in that game. So that that was an, a good choice. I mean, I wasn't a game I attended, so like I, I couldn't put that in there. My uh, number three was a Civil War comeback from 2013. Um, I still remember this game being in the press box going like, okay, Oregon State is going to win this game. They have the ball. Oregon doesn't really have a chance to stop them. Uh, there's not a whole lot of time left. All Oregon State has to do is score, you know, kick, run the clock out, kick a field goal. This game's over. Oregon State's going to upset Oregon at Autzen Stadium in a season where Oregon had been, I think, like 8 or 9-0 and before losing it to Stanford and Arizona in two out of three weeks. Season looked really promising. Oregon looked like they might play for a championship that year. This is Mariota's second to final, his sophomore season. And yet, things kind of started to implode. Mariota got hurt. They lost at Stanford. They beat Utah, but then they lost in by 26 points in Tucson. Um, just another one of those times down in the desert where things don't go your way. Come back to Oregon, at home against Oregon State, and it really, really looks like Oregon State is going to win this game on a last-second field goal, but they score a touchdown instead. Uh, Victor Bolden runs it in. They go for two, and they can't convert it. And that's important because they only lead by five points, which leads Oregon the opportunity to come down the field, and they do it. Nine plays, 83 yards. Marcus Mariota leads the drive, hits Josh Huff in the touchdown uh, in the end zone for a touchdown. I still remember the way the crowd responded to that because that was – Yeah, it was absolute insanity because everyone in the – anyone in that new football really knew that they did not deserve to even have a chance to win that game, much less win it the way they did. Um, and it's a Civil War victory. It's a rivalry win. That is, those are obviously carry a little bit more weight, and it added a little bit more momentum before they went out in the Alamo Bowl and beat Texas thirty to seven. I know that season, the twenty thirteen season's kind of got kind of one of those strangely forgotten seasons because there was a lot of promise, and then Mariota gets hurt, and the season doesn't play out quite the, the same way everybody wanted it to. But um, that comeback, at least, is something that I won't forget anytime soon. And I think from an Oregon fan perspective, was one of the more uh, exciting come-from-behind wins that I can think of that I've covered. My number two is the the most recent Oregon football game, in my mind. Oregon beating Ohio, uh, Ohio State, beating Wisconsin in the 2020 Rose Bowl. I just, I think that was such a defining moment. They won 28-27. Think about all the storylines that kind of just got, you know, wiped out or confirmed. Let's say, just you know, first of all, it's Mario Cristobal can't win the big game. Mario Cristobal is this program, is this blueprint that he's building? Is it going to win the big game against the elite team? And the Badgers were eighth in the country; they were ten and three coming in. Oregon wins that game, twenty-eight twenty-seven. Cristobal kind of val- gets his validation. Out. Fair or not, um, you know, I I was I'm on, you know, Cristobal is an elite coach before this game, but this kind of validated it. Um, Justin Herbert had always kind of had that. What's his signature win? What's his big game? And while he only threw for 138 yards and no touchdowns, you know, he scored three touchdowns on the ground and he scored the game-winning touchdown for Oregon uh, in a come-from-behind fashion, and he leaves Oregon. With a signature win, you know, a signature moment, a career-defining timeline of a game. Um, Oregon's defense, we felt like they were elite. We kind of said so, and you and I were all in on it. But after that game, and you know, they straight up dominated. They 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 forced a ton of turnovers against Wisconsin. The Badgers had just 322 yards of total offense. They had a 3.7 yards per carry, you know, average. Uh, they were five of 17 on third downs. They had four turnovers. You know, Oregon forced three fumbles. 
They had uh, an interception. They had a defensive touchdown. Uh, you know, it, it, everything we've we've said about this defense in 2020, everything that the national media has said about the defense in 2020, a large part of that is in part because of how they played in that 2020 Rose Bowl. And I think it's also going to set this program up long term for the next two or three, four years to be able to go out and validate the success and all the the recruiting, you know, jumbo that they've that they've you know that they use and you know look look it's no doubt about it. You know, they are very brash and they are very you know forward thinking about their recruiting and their marketing of their program. But this kind of validates all of that. And it's not just now sizzle without any kind of flash and you know without without any kind of context or substance to it there's legitimately now something to fall back on of we're this way because we've done this and i i think this is going to be a game that's going to define the program for years to come i don't disagree with you so much that that one might be later on my list and considering <laughs> where we are on our list that gives away what my number one might be but um let me let me go to number two first so we don't jump everything um the 2018 season, I think, is a really interesting interesting one to look back on because I think so much was accomplished during that season and so much groundwork was set, and yet it was like it had some real low points, some real disappointing points in that season. I mean, some of the all of the losses were kind of gut punches. Um, either they were games where Oregon just didn't play very well, or they were games where Oregon should have won but kind of didn't. They, they blew it late. You know, think about that Stanford game and everything that went wrong there, but. There was a, a moment in here which I think was critical for setting up what you just talked about, that 2019 season, and that was the home game against Washington in uh, October or yeah, October 13th. Washington had turned this rivalry around, at least for a couple of seasons, and of course we all think back to that 70-21 to 21 game in 2016 at Otson. That felt like a real significant passing, quote-unquote, of a torch. Washington kind of took that mantle and, and won the conference a couple years in a row, played for a college football playoff, um, everything that kind of went into the rivalry. When they came back to Otson for that return game in 2018, Oregon was able to really put things together, and I think that win... And we can talk about the fact that not only was it a, a, a win where Oregon wins in exciting walk-off fashion with that C.J. Verdell touchdown, or I think that's going to be one of the more memorable plays in, in this rivalry's history. We talk about that Kenny Wheaton play means for Oregon, uh, obviously, in terms of they play it right before every home game at Autzen Stadium. I don't know if that Verdell play will ever carry that same weight, but it certainly will be a play that people will talk about in this rivalry. It was a humongous moment. But not only that, but I think that win shifted kind of this rivalry a little bit. Uh, I know Washington still won the conference that year, but Oregon's ability to prove that not only can they compete, but they can beat Washington, they can play a style that Washington plays, and they can play it better, right. set them up, I think, for what we see now, which is Oregon has become the dominant team in the Pac-12 North. They've taken it away from Washington. And I think this game, even though the season didn't play out, the way it probably could have. And I think at the time we felt like it was going to, and that's what made that season disappointing was that they go and then they turn around and they lose to Washington State and they aren't competitive. A couple weeks later they lose to Utah and Arizona in games. They aren't very competitive. But this game I think was really significant for laying the groundwork in 2019 and beyond, and it really sort of established Oregon's dominance again in this rivalry. Yeah, that, that was one I thought back hard on because I, I – I, it certainly is up there in terms of most thrilling. It, it may be the best game I've ever covered in terms of just end of game. You know, how does the game end and the outcome that you get to? How does that happen? That that may be number one. That or the like you said, your your number three, the two thousand and uh, what is it, thirteen Civil War game. Um, those two games are up there in terms of just how the game ends and Oregon walks off the field. The, you know, victorious because they score in the final seconds. Literally for the 18 game, they, it's a walk off. Um, my number one, I, I think I'm, I'm surprised or I don't know. My number one is Oregon versus Florida State in the 2015 Rose Bowl. Um, this was a game in which Florida State had won, I believe, 27 straight games coming into this one, um, or 28 straight games coming into this game. 
They were the defending national champions. Uh, they had a Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback. Obviously, Oregon did too with Marcus Mariota, but James, uh, James Winston had won it the year before. Um, Oregon was in a position where it was truly going up against one of the blue bloods of college football. I mean, you think, think back to what you say about college football. Who were the best teams historically? And I don't think Florida State's going to be your number one or your number two or your number three team that you, you throw out there, but they're in that top five. They're in that top 10 discussion. You know, historically, the last 30 years, 40 years of, of college football, you know, they recently had that, that streak of what is it like 36 straight years of going to a bowl game. I mean, they are consistently good every single year. And Oregon went into that Rose Bowl thinking, they were the better team and then they went out and showed it and it wasn't, it was a game in which at halftime it was 18 to 13 Oregon. They were winning by five points. I remember Carlos Williams for Florida State scored a touchdown with like a minute left in the first half to, you know, make it go from 18 to six to 18 to 13. That kind of changed the perplexion of that first half a little bit because Oregon kind of dominated. But then in the third quarter, Oregon just pulled away. Royce Freeman scored a, a touchdown, I think, on Oregon's first possession of the third. Ohio State scored another touchdown uh, on their second drive uh, of that half, it, and you know to keep it respectable, twenty-five to twenty, Oregon. But then Oregon just avalanched them. Carrington scored a touchdown, a fifty-nine yard, fifty-six yard touchdown pass from Mariota to go up twelve, and then they get the ball right back. And Carrington scores a 30-yard touchdown pass from Marcus Mariota. Now they're up 19, 39 to 20. And then this is where it felt like the back was broken for Florida State. Jameis Winston fumbles. Uh, it's just a, it's an iconic play in Oregon football history. And Tony Washington scoops it up, runs it back 58 yards for a touchdown. Oregon goes into the fourth quarter leading 45 to 20. And then you, you got touchdowns in the first five minutes of the fourth quarter. Mariota scoring a 23-yard run, and then Thomas Tyner scoring a 21-yard run. And the thing I remember most about that Tyner one is during the play on the sidelines, that's when Florida State quit. And I remember going back and watching the telecast and Kirk Herbstreet talking about that. Like, Tyner scored, and it was an impressive run, and you don't want to take any credit away from him, but it was that play in which – all of a sudden, Florida State went from being one of the best teams in the country to being in a position where they were just, we want to get out of here. We don't care anymore. We're done. Get us out. And they and they stopped playing. They stopped competing. And I think that's the ultimate sign of a dominating win is when you force your opponent to basically give up. Well, but I, I think Jameis Winston said it right after the game. It could have gone either way. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was there in that press conference, and there was – there were maybe like 10 people, 15 people in that room um, for Jameis Winston and his head coach and Jimbo Fisher. Yeah. And uh, the name was escaping me. And I just remember him saying, oh, you know, a couple plays, it could have gone either way. You know, we were right there until the very end. It could have gone either way. And everyone was just like, what? Like, dude, you just lost by 39 points. How do you say that? <laughs> I, I don't I don't know I, I I've never understood that comment um, but for some reason that comment has always stuck with me from from that game I did not attend that one or cover that one or else that would be an easy number one I, I ranked that the number one game or, or I think at least the number one victory of the decade for for Oregon and for good reason um, I've already given away what my number one is and Matt ran through it and I think it did a really good job so I'll keep this somewhat brief but this year's this last game we've watched. Um, the 2020 Rose Bowl win over Wisconsin had a, every element that you needed in terms of suspense of the game, in terms of two powerhouses at the line of scrimmage matching up and you know trading blows for four quarters. The fact that Oregon's offense really had no significant rhythm the whole game, aside from when Justin Herbert ran the football, which was a wrinkle of that offense that had not been present the entire season. Um you know, the, the fact that there were special teams plays, that there were these wild turnovers. Brady Breeze's pick up, you know, him picking up the ball with one hand and running it in for a touchdown after that muffed punt 
or uh, I should say the punter dropping it. I mean, that's one of those, that's a memorable play as well. And I think the fact that two kids from the state of Oregon, you know, that grew up watching MVPs. Oregon play were the MVPs of the game. And there's a ton of things that you like there. And then I think Matt did a great job of running through how this, you know, we talked about it, you know, in the days after the games and the weeks and months after, but it shouldn't get lost. I think that really is a defining sort of victory for Cristobal in terms of how they want to play, the type of style they want to be, um, and the type of program that they want to embody. So that game, to me, I think defines the program really, really well. And we don't know what the 2020 season is going to look like or the seasons beyond that, but if Oregon is able to take that style and continue to build off of it, they're going to be very, very successful. And I think with the way that they've continued to recruit athletes and the way that they continue to, we think, upgrade the coaching staff with a couple of different off-season changes, I think there's no reason to believe that the program can't continue an upward trajectory using the same playing style and using that same kind of mentality that we saw all of 2020, but especially in that bowl game and went over Wisconsin, because I really think that was a gut check, another one of those gut check victories, which is what I kind of, all three of the wins on here are those kind of wins. Um, that game to me will, will always stand out for, for a variety of reasons, but I think that will be the big one is just that this kind of sets them up going forward. What was a game? I have one if you don't, if you're not prepared yet. Games that made, that almost made the cut. Um, for yeah, me, got, this one is, I have one if, if you want me to, to go. Go ahead. Um, this one I think is significant in a couple different ways because I don't know if, how many people knew this, but I, I started covering Oregon athletics in 2009. And from 2009 to through the 2014 football season, or 2014 um, and 2015 athletic season, so the national championship year for for football, and then um, I think in 2015 the Ducks played Wisconsin and the NCAA tournament, and whatnot. Through through that like seven, eight, six year period. I also had a full-time job during the day at a radio station in Eugene. And in the middle to end of the 2015 football season, I went full-time working for DuckTerritory.com. And the first game that I covered where I was strictly the only job that I was doing was working for 24-7 Sports was the – November 14th game at Stanford in 2015. And if Duck fans remember, that's the Vernon Adams year. Oregon was three and three through the middle of early October. They just lost to Washington State. Darren Carrington comes back. They, they beat the Huskies 26 to 20. They then go down to Arizona State and they have that triple overtime, just wild game where there was accusations of, of, of ASU ceiling signs and they win that one 61 to 55. So now they're five and three, but they're still kind of out of the picture. They, they beat Cal 44 to 28. They're six and three, four and two in the Pac 12. And then Stanford at the time was a top 10 team. And up until that point in time, I, I think they lost maybe once all year, if I remember right. And it was the, first game of the year so they they'd literally rattled off eight straight wins they were a top 10 team in the country they needed to beat Oregon and if they did that they they won the Pac-12 North and they find their way in, into the Pac-12 into the Pac-12 championship game and Oregon won 38 to 36 and it came down literally to the final seconds of that game if you remember um, Oregon was up going into the fourth quarter 35 to 23 and then they scored a touchdown with 10 – Sanford scored a touchdown with 10 seconds left to pull within two points. And they tried a two-point conversion to tie the game. And Joe Walker diving breaks it up, and they win. Top 10 win on the road at Stanford. The team, you know, up until that point, had really given the Cardinal, the Ducks a lot of problems. And for me personally, it's like this is the first game I'm covering full-time, strictly for work, and it's like – Holy crap, this is an amazing game. And while I covered it, you know, the national championship game and the Rose win over Florida State, you know, the year before, 
this felt different because this was like my only job. And it's like, I have to do the best job I possibly can to tell the story because this is the only way I make money. I, I almost included a combination plate here, which I guess would be the Matt Prem special since you couple times here, you'll combine a couple different things to twist the rules and get an extra year. I almost, my number three was almost a combination of Oregon losses to Stanford. Um, just heartbreaking defeats. You think the 2012 game, the Zach Ertz game, the DeAnthony Thomas doesn't block for Marcus Mariota and they don't score on that possession and then they don't win that game. Um, that was the season where if they win that game, then they beat the Beavers the next week. They're undefeated and playing for a national championship. Um, that one is one that stood out that I remember covering and just being like, there's no way this game's going to overtime. And then when it goes to overtime, it's there's no way they're going to lose, and they do. And then, unfortunately, the 2018 season, the same thing against Stanford, where it looks like Oregon for the most of the game is going to win, and then at the end, Stanford kicks a late field goal to tie it and send it to overtime, and then the Cardinal win in overtime. Um, those two games <clears throat> were similar in terms of being devastating because Oregon looked like the better team. They played like the better team. They were the better team, and they coughed it up late because of some silly mistakes um, in Stanford 1. But I also think taught some lessons because um, that 2012 team, I think the, 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 the realization that you have to play every single game, I think that set Oregon up for their 2014 run. Um, and the 2018, that game against Stanford, that set them up, I think, to beat Washington a couple weeks later. And I think that also was significant in setting up this last season's run. And I, I even think if you want to do an extension of that, the way 2019 opened in uh, in Dallas against Auburn, losing a game like that, I think really set up uh, the team for the, the stretch run where they ran all, rattled off all those victories in a row. Um, I think those losses they have, which while we're talking about defining wins a lot largely, I know Matt included a loss himself, but some of those losses I think can really be um, propellants, I guess, for a program to kind of get going because you see how – hard it is to, to win every game and, and how important it is to kind of give it your all at all moments or else uh, you see what the repercussions can be. And Oregon has certainly had a handful of those kind of opportunities as well. Yeah, that's a that's a good use of the Matt Preem special. <laughs> Got three in there. A couple selections of getting one in. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Did we miss a game that's more defining? What, were, what was the most defining game you saw in person as a fan if you were at at an Oregon athletic game, men's basketball, women's basketball, football. Is there another sport that you felt like was just really defining? Uh, let us know. Tweet at us. Put it in the comments on duckterritory.com. Uh, for Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Prem. Thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.